0: This is the first Sunday in Lent. During Lent we say in Lent as opposed to the first Sunday of Advent. And the reason for that is that technically Sundays don't count as part of Lent. So we always understand the Sunday is a a mini Easter all through the year. So we say the first Sunday in Lent. And on this first Sunday in Lent, I want to do a little rehearsal for you of the readings from Ash Wednesday because they have something to do with presenting us with three themes that are going to recur throughout the entire season. And then after that to say a word to you about the temptation of Christ, which is the story we read every first Sunday in Lent uh, every year. So we need to make some sense out of the temptation of Christ and how it might uh, connect to our own sense of temptation and why it is important that we read about the temptation of Christ as appropriate preparation for our own temptation and coming to grips with it in this season of self-examination. On Ash Wednesday, three themes... Uh, are placed before us as predicates, if you will, for uh, the Lenten season of self-examination and repentance. The first one is repentance. And we read in the reading from the prophet Joel on Ash Wednesday the exhortation to the people to repent, to recover their sense of conversion, and to understand more deeply and fully their vocation as people of the covenant. In the Hebrew Bible, the word that Joel used for repent is shub, which means to turn around and to look at things in a different way. In the Greek New Testament, uh, the words that we use have something to do with turning around and looking at things in a new way But there is the added idea of the creation of some internal resolve to do and be more closely in our lives congruent with God's purposes for us. And one of the two words in the New Testament that uh, is translated as repentance has to do with finding the ways and the means to putting it in your hands in terms of changed Behavior. I want to pause there and say a word to you about repentance in our tradition, particularly as Western Christians, and hopefully to see that since the liturgical renewal in the church over the last 40 years, we have made an attempt to recover the season of Lent as one in which we understand repentance as the process of reconversion a process of reconnecting to the promises made at our baptism, and to see that somehow repentance has something to do with our corporate responsibilities as well as our personal responsibilities. So I hope you can follow me here. St. Jerome, one of the great minds of the early Christian church, the church of the first five centuries, is the one who produced the first biblical translation in the vulgar tongue. And we mean, in this case, Latin. And the name of the Bible that he produced is called the Vulgate Bible, and it is still the Bible in the Roman Catholic Church. And in the New Testament, where he translates metanoiete, Metanoia, but metanoia means to you to be repentant, to do repentance. He translates it as here's the thirty nine ninety five treatment, penitentiatum agitate, and what that means is to do penance. That's not the same as turning around and looking at your life in a different way. It means to be. It means to through pious practices and other means to get yourself right with God. And so it produces, therefore, in terms of the church's preaching and teaching, an overweening emphasis on personal and individual sinfulness and the need for us to appease a God who's very angry at us. So as we go through Christianity from St. Jerome's Bible through to the Reformation period, we're going to see that by the time we get to the high Middle Ages, repentance becomes a highly individualized, internalized reflection on our shortcomings personally. Now, there's nothing wrong with spending a little time on our, on our shortcomings personally or perhaps reflecting on some things in the past that we have done that we need not to do again. But the emphasis of this to the exclusion of understanding the importance of turning your life around, recommitting yourself, and not focusing so much on God's punishment and God's wrath, as much as reconnecting to the knowledge that we all have through the biblical witness and through the Church's great tradition, that we have a part to play in God's plan for the cosmos. And if we're doing or thinking things that are preventing us from rising to the occasion, that then becomes the substance of our Lenten discipline and self-examination. And the refocus that we're called to do about the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God. You know, you won't get the Reformation until you understand that Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and what's his name, Bullinger, and all the gang in the Magisterial Reformation were consummate medievalists. They were exponents of a view of God and the world and sin and repentance and the need to avoid punishment and the belief that satisfaction had to be given to a God who was justly angry for our behavior. And that happened to also fit with our cultural milieu. If you're from northern Europe... Or you're a Celtic Christian, that's how you think about things. That's the world you lived in. You had kings who were angry, you had people who were upset, you needed to get square with them. Or there was going to be trouble and plenty of it. So what we're trying to do is to say, you know what, that maybe shouldn't be the complete focus of our attention here. And that the primitive church's understanding of repentance was to touch that place where we knew even for a split second that God unconditionally accepted, loved, and forgave us and that we were part of the plan of God made in God's image and called good. So I mentioned that repentance is part of the way we need to Be faithful to keeping the season, but it should be tinctured with the understanding that the traditional emphasis for a long time on our personal sins and shortcomings should be kept in perspective. About three or four weeks ago, I preached a sermon on repentance and mentioned that I think it is fair to say that in the culture that we live in, particularly in a culture that some refer to as the therapeutic culture— and have for at least 40 years or more, that there is not enough remorse. And it is possible, rather than to think in black and white terms, that you and I need to have a healthy sense of remorse for some things that we've done and some ways that we think about things, and in a moment we're going to talk about corrupt motives, that need to have a little attention paid. So it is possible not to be overly scrupulous about personal sinfulness and getting right with God and sort of walking around in a perpetual flinch and understanding that there are some things you ought to be sorry for and to ask God for forgiveness or to acknowledge at least that you know those are things that are going to be the substance of some spiritual purification, as Father Keating would say. The process of purification is even undertaken by the Savior in the temptation in the wilderness, which we'll talk about in a minute. So it's an important thing. The second theme in Ash Wednesday is reconciliation. And being reconcilers is at the heart of our self-understanding as Christian people. In our catechism... When the question is asked in the catechism, what is the mission of the church? The answer is, the mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. It is the affirmation that reconciliation is at the heart of our behavior and interaction as Christian people And if we understand ourselves as the leaven in the lump, that in the wider world, when we go out of here on Sunday and do what we do during the week, that we become instruments of reconciliation. The reading that we read on Ash Wednesday from 2 Corinthians had three parts to it with regard to understanding Paul's sense of the necessity for reconciliation. In this section, he is engaged in a lengthy defense of his apostleship that has come under question from a rival group who has come into Corinth in his absence and told them that they are preaching the authentic Christianity, and what Paul preached and taught them is the inauthentic Christianity, and that they need to switch their allegiance. So, Paul is being defensive. But he is also saying that it is important for us to be reconciled one to another. And he tells them that he has come to them to preach his gospel without corrupt motive and with the clear belief out of his own personal history and testimony that he was touched by God and that he believes himself to be God's instrument. And further to the point, he says, in the course of the conflict that has been created within your community by these new teachers, you need to practice reconciliation among yourselves. And that will lead you to understand that one of the ways that you can do that effectively is to see that the interior processes, the emotional and spiritual and mental work that each of you need to do to become more mature in your spiritual life and more deeply and fully connected to God, is to reconcile those things within you that are at war. Remember Paul says to us in another place in the New Testament, that he finds that that he is at war with his members, the committee that lives rent-free in his head, his personal demons, and that as we seek to reconcile these forces that seem conflicting and difficult with us, we are able now to be better prepared to be God's instruments in the world. We're never going to get rid of these things completely. But we are going to learn something about the nature of true reconciliation. The bringing to bear God's love on all aspects of our character. And we do that by beginning to understand God's unconditional acceptance, love and forgiveness. And if we feel a new freedom and a new peace... It makes it far more easy for us to be non-anxious in the face of the anxiousness and reactivity of other people that we are in relationship with, in the workplace, in the family, in friendships, on the job, whatever it is that you want to describe. That is how it might work. So being reconcilers are important. It has some real spiritual significance for us corporately and personally. And finally, in Matthew's Gospel, on Ash Wednesday, we have a Gospel about clean motives, about closer proximity between the letter and the Spirit, about understanding that you and I should not always enter into relationships based on self-centered fear. Father Thomas Keating says in his book, Open heart, open mind, the contemplative dimension of the gospel, that when we speak about the areas in which we find the greatest tension and difficulty, the greatest spiritual, emotional and mental stress, has to do with the three energy centers that beset all humanity, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And these pre-rational programs for happiness that all of us receive as the result of the developmental emotional processes that we all go through as human beings are part of how we come to any situation in the world. And so learning now to leech these natural impulses of their corrupt motive, what he would refer to as the false self, we become more fully and deeply connected to our true self, made in the image and likeness of God. In the gospel for today, we have the most bare-bones description of the temptation of Christ. And it flows, in this particular case, from the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry through his baptism. And remember in Mark's Gospel, which is unique in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus is baptized and comes out of the river, the voice from heaven, you are my Son, the Beloved, with you I am well pleased, is heard only by him. It is for him a time when he sees and understands his vocation in depth. In other words, it's a gospel example. There are different accounts of this where we focus on the interior states of our own conversion and the emerging sense of our own vocation and who we are and what it is that we ought to do. And Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, experiences the same thing. And what happens? He is driven into the wilderness immediately for 40 days to think about his vocation. He has a desert experience. And at that desert experience, in that desert experience, he is tempted around the three energy centers about which Father Keating speaks in his writings. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. Keating says that Jesus redeemed us from the consequences of our emotional programs for happiness By experiencing them himself, he appears in the desert as a representative of the human race. So when it says in our liturgy, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. It is the example that he has gone before us to assist us in allowing us to see as we become more fully human each of us are representatives of the human race, that we can accept the graces that God offers us in Christ and we are more able to effectively deal with the downside of these three energy centers. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. So, this week... Think about repentance, reconciliation, and clean motives. Don't focus on a laundry list of shortcomings, is your Lenten reflection. See how you can rise to the occasion. If you have any issues arising from the three energy centers, ask God to assist you in the process of bringing some sense of clarity and serenity to the process of getting clear about them. Remember that one of the things that we learned throughout Lent and in the story of the temptation, that Jesus is not in the desert by himself. He's there with a God who loves, accepts, and forgives us unconditionally. Amen. Amen.